Today on the podcast, are we about to see a dam break where many or maybe even dozens of states get rid of their bar exams? And if so, which state will be the first? Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So a lot of you out there are probably lawyers. Think back to when you were studying for the bar exam. Do you ever think to yourself, there are so many better things I could be doing with my time than this? Well, if you did, there is a law school dean out there who feels your pain. His name is Brian Galini, and he's the head of the Willamette University College of Law in Salem, Oregon. Galini sat on Oregon's Alternatives to the Exam Task Force, a group created to think about whether requiring aspiring lawyers to get a JD and then pass an exam actually makes sense. Earlier this summer, the task force issued its report, and that report found that, no, this doesn't really make sense. The Oregon Supreme Court is now considering the task force's recommendations and could act on them later this year, which would mean the bar exam could be optional for Beaver State law grads as soon as the class of 2024. But as you'll hear in my conversation with Galini, that doesn't necessarily mean that Oregonians will be licensed to practice law as soon as they get a diploma. It's more complicated than that. First, I started off by asking Galini, who is no fan of the bar exam, to make the case for it. So I will be charitable to it for the moment. The idea is that it's designed to provide two core things, which is minimum competence and protecting the public. And so those twin things are once we graduate a student who then passes the bar, kind of celebrates to the public that this is someone who, after accomplishing uh, uh, this sort of rite of passage, we think is minimally competent to serve the public. And why, why do we, does every state have their own exam? Why do we not have like a national, you know, bar exam? Like, uh, you know, we have a, a national one, we have one LSAT. We don't have 50 LSATs. No, it's a super fair point. Uh, and in some ways it's, it's more straightforward, but more complicated all at once. So at one time there was one scheme, uh, but now we have what's called the uniform bar exam. And, and so states can opt in to the UBE, which if I get a certain score, uh, we call that a portable score. So, and we can talk about kind of what that means. I say it's more complicated and less at, at all at the same time because we'd say, oh, that's great. The, the intuition is, well, there's a uniform bar exam, meaning it's uniform. But the double click on that is that not every state has opted in, number one, and perhaps more confusingly for both the public and, and for examinees is that not every state has the same, what's called a cut score. So the minimum score over which you, you, must, uh, you must have to, in order to pass. The bar exam is kind of notoriously difficult. Like everyone who's taken it and who studied for it has talked about how, you know, who I've spoken to who said it's it's really hard and a big imposition. Can you talk about just how hard it is for people who haven't taken the bar exam like myself? What kinds of burdens does it impose? So I think it's an exam of privilege. It's an exam of resources uh, because what, and this, this data is out there, um, you know, the more time you have to invest in the exam, the greater likelihood that you, you have to pass. And so if I'm a, a single parent who needs to work and I don't have the resources for daycare or childcare, um, that's a real imposition. And therefore, we know empirically that that hinders my chances of passing. And I would just also point out that, that there are a lot of things that kind of people don't realize, which is that oftentimes the, the lion's share of employment opportunities that students would get 
the job opportunities will not actually occur until the student passes the bar exam. So to just kind of set the stage for a moment, we graduate our students and then we say, well, you graduated, but put your life on hold without income for a period of time. Meanwhile, expenses accrue in the form of life, right? Rent, food, other. Um, and, and then you layer on top of that the cost of a bar prep program, which conservatively is about $3,000. And by the way, when you add up the bar prep plus life expenses, again, I'm going to be conservative here uh, across the summer, you're talking about between six to $9,000 of additionally incurred debt, which, and here's the punchline, is not student loan eligible. So now what you're also saying is to a student who may or may not have established credit, because by the way, they've been in school, good luck going out and getting a private loan to finance this exam. And, and so you know what students do is they say quite reasonably, well, I need to work. But that's the other part uh, that we also know empirically, which is two things impact apart from time, likelihood of passage, one of which is an unanticipated life crisis. Well, let's put that aside for obvious reasons. But the second of which is working. So we know empirically that if you're working, you are actively diminishing your chances of passing the bar. And I mean, in addition to that, so I mean, that, that I think that clearly lays out that, you know, this poses a really big burden on people financially uh, and discriminates against essentially people from lower income backgrounds. But you wrote a column for Bloomberg Law in April that also talked about racial uh, discrimination and the bar. Can you get into that? Sure. And actually, since then, and, and you may have caught this, the ABA released its long promised data uh, empirically laying out that uh, in the last cycle, in 2020, we had a now empirically proven racial disparity, where in the uh, 2020 cycle, we saw basically a 15-ish percent differential between white bar takers and, and BIPOC bar takers. So now we're in a space where it's, you know, don't don't take my work at, word for it, don't take other academics' word for it, as credible as as I view those those words to be. Now we have the accreditor for law schools acknowledging that that there is a racial disparity, and some people have said, well. You know, there's a lot of nuance in those numbers, maybe, or, or there's not. Um, and, and that's my view, is that the numbers speak for themselves and that alternatives may or may not address that. But what we do know is the current system is not working. And so I've never, you know, I've never heard of a system that says, well, the best way to address something is to just keep doing what we're doing. Let's talk about what, what's been happening over the last year, year and a half during the pandemic. Um, a lot of states suspended the bar, uh, the bar, I should say, suspended the bar exam um, due to social distancing requirements, uh, among other logistical issues, and just uh, gave diploma privileges, which I, I gather is, um, you know, you graduate from law school, boom, you're a lawyer. What has been happening with that? Uh, and is that something that could uh, continue on after the pandemic is over? Yeah, so you've touched on kind of the impetus of what the alternatives to exam task force where sort of the launch point was. So to go back to roughly this time last year, the Oregon State Supreme Court voted by 4-3 margin to grant emergency diploma privilege to the class of 2020 graduates for all three Oregon law schools. And Oregon was one of five states uh, to engage, uh, to, to have diploma privilege emerge from the pandemic. Willamette, I'm, I'm incredibly proud, was the only law school of within the five states that said, well, let's let's actually not take the quote unquote summer off and let's get to work. And so we put our graduates together and formed uh, what we called a racial justice task force to study a narrow issue on the role of implicit bias and criminal jury selection. Uh, 
The issue led to some law reform conversations, which are probably outside the scope of, of today's talk. But what I, what I think is important is it provided the breadcrumbs for folks kind of murmuring sort of softly at first, and then the, the voices got a little louder that, hey, you know, there are other ways for our examinees to spend the summer. And from there, in the fall, our Chief Justice, Chief Justice Martha Walters, charged the Board of Bar Examiners, the BBX, with standing up a task force, the charge of which is publicly available, to identify whether, to your point, last summer's experience should be anomalous, or in fact, whether there are alternatives. And that's the, the sort of the origin of, of how the task force came to be. Yeah. What was uh, what were your findings? Because you just filed that report, uh, I think, pretty recently. What, what did you ultimately land on? So the task force, which was made up of, and perhaps that's where we should start, of roughly 30 uh, people. And very quickly, we were split into three subgroups. So we had the Wisconsin subcommittee, we had the New Hampshire subcommittee, and then we had the D.C. slash Canada subcommittee. And the reason those were broken out in that manner is Wisconsin has kind of what you were talking about before, straight diploma privilege. If I go to a Wisconsin law school, I graduate, I have uh, the opportunity to practice in the state of of uh, Wisconsin. So we had one subcommittee examine whether that would be appropriate to advance to the Board of Bar Examiners. The subcommittee I sat on, which is uh, the New Hampshire subcommittee, was designed to do a deep dive exploration into the Daniel Webster Scholars Program, which is in New Hampshire, which is a form of experiential partnership with the bar that's on a scholars basis. It's not a it's sort of everyone's uh, able to take advantage. Um, and moreover, it is a litigation track focused. And then the third was uh, this DC Canada model to look at articling and that translated into a supervised practice. The idea is that postgraduate, I would spend a certain amount of time with a practitioner who I'd work with over a period of projects or a number of hours. But then after doing so over a period of time, that's my licensure test rather than a particular examination. So which of the three did you land on? And actually, I know, uh, having read your uh, article that you wrote for us in April, I know you actually did not uh, prefer the Wisconsin model, which really surprised me. No, that's right. The committees, the subcommittees, when we reported back, the full task force elected not to advance the Wisconsin model and to advance what is now known as the OEP, the Oregon Experiential Pathway, and then also decided to advance what's now called the SPP, the Supervised Practice Pathway. And so I think I'm, I'm speaking for the entire task force when, when I say that it felt like the OEP was the most fully baked. And so those things were then advanced unanimously to the Board of Bar Examiners. Those two proposals were then presented to the Board of Bar Examiners. And then the Board of Bar Examiners, uh, to my surprise, uh, uh, which was a wonderful surprise, elected to unanimously advance both of those upon recommendation uh, to the state Supreme Court. So what does this mean? I mean, what's the next step here? Does does the, uh, I guess it goes to the state Supreme Court, but if they approve this, does that mean that the bar exam is now uh, a relic of history in Oregon? No. So if we, I think this is one of the things the task force and really the, the court and um, everyone who's been a party to this gets credit for the progressive approach here is to say, well, we're not going to disturb the opportunity for students to get a portable score. So we're going to leave the UBE in place. When we add the OEP, what that does is says students who attend Oregon law schools have a pathway to in-state licensure, but they don't have a portable score. And if we have the SPP, that permits examinees or students from out of state who want to come into Oregon but not seek a portable score 
actually have a path toward licensure in state. So when you kind of step back, it's this holistic approach to licensure that touches portability, in-state curricular, and then out of state, the person who doesn't want to sit for the UB and knows that Oregon is the place where they want to practice. Tell me a little bit about the pushback that you've gotten, because uh, if there's one thing I know about lawyers, it's that they are tradition bound. I have to imagine there are some people who had very strong negative reactions to what you're talking about. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, I guess I don't want to speak for them, but I think that there's this, first of all, just knee jerk reaction. So a lot of when when these proposals first came out and they made national had not they made the national news within um, kind of the scope of those who would follow this. The reaction was, well, you're doing away with the bar exam. And so very kind of in our 280 character society, very just knee jerk reaction. Like, oh, it's and then that led to a lot of criticism around, well, you're reducing. This is probably the biggest criticism. You're you're lowering, no pun intended, you're lowering the bar for admission. Therefore, we're worried about a couple of things. We're worried about minimum competence and and we're worried about increased discipline for attorneys. We're worried about, hey, we're just turning everybody loose here. And I think, you know, what I say, uh, so first of all, I would say two things. One, for anyone, and I've been very clear about this, anyone who wants to engage with me in this conversation, I'm always happy to talk about it. And in those conversations, uh, I have not had one person, and I've talked about this a lot. I've never had a person not change their mind after learning about the nuances of what the pathways uh, seek to impose and what they would do for the profession, both on a competence and equity basis. So, you know, we can talk about it to, to the degree your interest is or why that is, but I think it's important because in summary fashion, what I like to say on the experiential pathway is, well, if a two-day bar is good enough for you, how about a two-year bar? And that's really what the OEP is about. So, so we're not lowering expectations. We're dramatically rising uh, what's expected of, of uh, junior attorneys. I really wonder how much of the opposition from attorneys that you've gotten is just based in like, I had to do this sort of hellish thing when I was in law school. And it's unfair that people coming behind me don't have to go through this awful, you know, don't have to clear this obstacle that I cleared. Did you get any of that? Oh, that's the that's the cultural undercurrent that is often dressed up in maybe more nuanced criticisms. But but no, I think that I had to do it. You you should too. Bar exam as hazing ritual, absolutely. That's out there, you know. And and I think you really have to push folks and say, well, why is that the measure? Why is it that we want this as the measuring stick? And that leads to all sorts of other interesting questions. How come there's only one bar exam? Can you imagine if we didn't recertify pilots? If we didn't recertify uh, doctors, and I have a colleague, David Friedman, who's done some wonderful research on this, exploring, well, how did, how did we land on just one exam? And what if, what if you grabbed a 20-year lawyer and, and you asked that person to take a bar exam? How do you think they'd feel? And that is a lot of what we do in, in other professions, but not ours. And so that brings us back to, well, boy, why, why do we do it this way? And, and I think that's what helps to address some of that very powerful undercurrent. Yeah. Finally, I want to talk about the future. Um, you know, I think that we're at a really transitional moment for the bar exam. Uh, you know, I've heard from not just yourself, but other people that, you know, it needs really wholesale changes uh, to the way it works. Um, where do you see it in five years? Do you think that uh, within, let's say, five, maybe 10 years, will there be some state that just completely gets rid of it and, and goes to a totally different model? Um, 
or do you think that change is going to happen a lot more more slowly? There's going to be a lot of talk, but not a lot of change. I think it's a both and. And I guess before I elaborate, I would say I find it funny that when we talk about the bar and there needs to be a shift, it's the same society who if we get a ping on our phone to update the phone, we update the phone or we think about the new car. We think about the new thing. We don't think about that in terms of the bar exam. We just we keep driving the same model car. We keep using the same iteration of the software. Um, So that's what gives me thought that, well, this is going to take time. That being said, I think. We all know the undercurrents of change are out there. The movement is not going anywhere. The tide is is rising. And I think, you know, Oregon is poised to be the first state to make a very real and durable change that ideally would provide a replicable blueprint for other states that, that are studying this, Washington, New York being illustrative examples. So I think we need a domino to fall to showcase uh, and to kind of run into the into the fire of the criticism and showcase that there is actually a better way of managing attorney licensure. Now, I want to be careful, though, to say that even if our, using Oregon as an example, even if our court were to adopt and give a mandate to the schools and say, okay, this is now, uh, the experiential pathway is a pathway to licensure, it would still take the law schools upwards of two years to orient a curriculum that would be responsive. Because I think one thing we haven't talked about that's really important to respond to critics is what we often hear from employers is we want practice ready attorneys. We want attorneys who are versed in skills that we don't wanna have to teach uh, attorneys how to draft motions or how to file a complaint. Well, but look at what the incentive structure is for law school curriculum right now. We need to pass the bar. And so we need to create a curriculum that helps our students do that. Well, if the bar exam isn't putting out practice ready lawyers, then you're gonna get a curriculum that at, at some level in every law school is designed to address the exam Otherwise, our students can't practice rather than the skills that our employers really want to see. I say that both because there's an irony in that what we're trying to do would address what I think employers want, but it will take time for faculties to have the appropriate input, and they should, faculties own the curriculum in a law school, to figure out how best to kind of move the ship, so to speak, and that will take some time. Well, Brian... Thank you so much. This was really, really fascinating and made me really think about uh, the legal profession in a very different way. Uh, uh, That was Brian Galini, the uh, Dean of Willamette University Law School. Uh, Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Jessica Coombs. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter. If you have anything on your mind, we use the handle at BLaw. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in bye-bye bar exam. I'm going to be on vacation for a couple weeks, but we'll be back later this month with more episodes. Until then, thanks for listening. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.